The following podcast is not meant for children or for liberals, even though that's pretty much the same thing these days. But that's what we're here for. Somebody's got to keep these brats in line. Anyway, you've been warned. It's the right opinion. These days, our media is either incompetent or malevolent. They don't believe in heaven, but they acting like they haven't sent. Knowing the truth is way harder than telling it. We gotta work harder, gotta be more intelligent. Sometimes we just gotta grab a mic and start yelling shit. We're living in times when it's hard to stay relevant. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. Welcome back, everybody, to The Right Opinion right here on the therightopinion.podbean.com, also available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Just search The Right Opinion and be sure to click on The Right, The Right Opinion, the black and white and red all over, much like newspapers used to be. Um, you can you could find that there. There's also another one, The Right Opinion by the Washington Times. You could just ignore that as it's wholly irrelevant. Just be sure to follow this one here. And if you're listening on iTunes and just happen to get a really nice five-star review this week, Provide a few more of those, folks. That'd be much appreciated. Go to iTunes, give a five-star review, and uh, and we hopefully will get worked up the algorithms a little bit more, and we can get the word out to people who are just sheepishly being led around by their feelings by the mainstream media. But I've got a lot to talk about this week. I also want to let you know, though, that this podcast, while it's normally uh, this would normally be considered a bonus episode because it's not like my monthly to-do. As some of you may have noticed, I'm doing more and more of these, mostly because I'm just I'm getting the itch and I've had the time and and I'm trying to to do as much as I possibly can for you guys because I do love all of the feedback from all of you fine folks. And if you want to provide some of that in addition to leaving a five star review on your podcatcher of choice, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Right Opinion Pod. You can email the show and the email address is the Right Opinion Pod at gmail.com and then uh, also instagram as well at right opinion pod and i'm posting up some memes got a nice little one up there that's actually going to be relevant to the end of this episode but before i dive into all of the other good stuff i do have to let you know that this show while it would usually be considered a bonus episode because it's not like my monthly regular edition and again i am trying to get more of those out to there out to you folks this will be available across all platforms, hackerami.podbean.com and ratsaladreview.com. For those of you unaware, maybe just tuning in and don't know anything about those platforms, hackerami.podbean.com is your hub for all things professional wrestling, conspiracy theories, there's a lot of pop culture stuff, there's a Star Wars show, there's a horror movie show. We have a variety of stuff going on over there. I believe it's over 20 uh, different shows that are going out every week, so be sure to keep an eye out for that, hackerhameen.podbean.com, or you could just search hackerhameen on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, pretty much anywhere podcasts are found, you could find hackerhameen also check out Rat Salad Review. If you guys are into rock and roll music, heavy metal music, they have a litany of programming over there where they review and they talk about rock and roll and heavy metal. And I had the good fortune of getting to know the fellas over there. And they actually were a sponsor of ours over at hackerhameen.podbean.com. And then Wayne Noon of Rat Salad Review reached out to me. He's like, hey, would it be cool if we posted the right opinion on our feed? And I was like, dude, if you got the stones to put my podcast on your feed, by all means. And that goes out to the rest of you as well. You got a podcast network out there. You're looking for some content, maybe something a little outside the box, because let's face it, 
right-wing conservative opinions are unfortunately not the mainstream right now. They are the counterculture. And if you're looking to hop onto that counterculture before it becomes the culture and no longer cool, then tune into this podcast. And if you want me on your airwaves, hit a brother up, the right opinion pod at gmail.com or on Twitter. DMs are always open at right opinion. So that said, uh, one more pro- public service announcement before I get into the thick of things this week. This month, in addition to Black History Month, did you also happen to know that February is Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month? Yes, every February across the United States, teens and those who support them join together for a national effort to raise awareness to teen dating violence. Now, I can tell you, as somebody who's going to have a teen daughter in a little over two years, this is a subject I'm getting increasingly more aware of. And it's a subject that certainly requires more attention. So dating violence is more common than many people think. One in three teens in the U.S. will experience physical, sexual, or emotional abuse by someone that they are in a relationship with before they become an adult. And nearly half, 43% in this case, of college women report experiencing violent and abusive dating behaviors. By joining together every February, we can spread awareness and stop dating abuse before it starts. You can show your support on February 11th by wearing orange and posting it on social media with the hashtag orange for love. That is orange, the number four, love. And for more information, you can go to breakthecycle.org or loveisrespect.org, or you could contact a good friend of the show. His name is John Enright. You could reach out to him on Twitter at jreezymin, that's J-R-E-A-Z-Y-M-I-N, or email him at john at freedomhousepc.org. John is a member of a couple of really fine organizations down in Weatherford, Texas, that do a litany of good work. But this is one of the causes that they're championing for the month here, and uh, John's a huge supporter. I love John to death. So by all means, if I can help him out a little bit, that's February 11th. Hashtag orange for love. Wear orange. Post it on social media and raise awareness for teen dating violence. Simple enough, right? All right. So now that we've gotten all of the stuff out of the way, the obligatory stuff, and thanks again to John for that. And for the record, if any of you guys out there have causes you want championed, the way I look at it is if you're not making any money on it, there's no reason for me to make any money on it. If you're trying to get the awareness out there, shoot me an email, shoot me a DM. I'll be more than happy to work with you if I think it's a cause that it's worth championing. And this one most certainly is not just because of my personal um, you know, proclivities to this sort of thing or at least potential, you know, potential interaction with this problem in a couple of years, but because this is obviously a problem, right? And if you have issues in teen dating, you're going to have people who grow up to be broken, damaged individuals, and they probably end up being Democrats, and that's never good for anybody. And uh, I'm sorry I turned your message into something political, John, but this is a political podcast after all. Thanks again. And orange for love, hashtag orange for love, people, February 11th, wear your orange, post it to social media, and give John a shout. Uh, you Feel free to, to tag us on Twitter. He, again, is jreezymin, J-R-E-A-Z-Y, M-I-N, and yours truly, at Right Opinion Pod. So let me get into the table of contents for the week here. This is a pretty simple one. We're going to do three things. We're going to break down the Biden crime family. I'm going to rant about Taylor Swift. And then we're going to talk about Obama's secret war in Ukraine slash Russia. Fair enough. Everybody following along so far? Cool. Obviously, there's a lot of other things that I could be talking about this week, because let's face it, last week was possibly the greatest week in President Trump's presidency, but rather than say exactly what every other pundit has stated, 
in regards to the Dempster fire that was the Iowa caucus or the brilliant State of the Union address or the drunk Nancy's childish antics or Mitt Romney being a big old bitch or, you know, Trump and his fully expected and wholly justified acquittal. There's a lot of stuff I could talk about, but I feel like I just said everything I needed to say in that short paragraph. So I'm going to leave that there for now. But rest assured, if any of these become bigger stories at somewhere down the line, I'll be revisiting them. But otherwise, it was a tremendous week for Trump and a terrible week to be a Democrat. Speaking of the Democrats, let's dive into one of their, uh, well, I guess he's not the front runner anymore, but one of the front runners for the Democratic presidential nomination. Uh, I have my doubts at this point that he's ever going to ascend to that level again, but hey, stranger things have happened, I suppose. Let's talk about him. He's creepy. He's sleepy. He's flippy. He's floppy, but he's got no malarkey. He's quid pro job. Oh, yes, he thinks your body is a wonderland, and uh, he apparently has never had an original thought in his life. So I'm going to talk about his whole family and how they've all been enriched, but I feel like it's important to talk about Joe Biden first and foremost. Now, Joe Biden hasn't really been caught doing anything super nefarious. If anything, he's guilty of being an idiot and covering his ears and going, la, 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 I can't hear you while his family is making a boatload of money off of his name. That said, Joe Biden is a wholly unremarkable human being. I always say, and I mean this with every ounce of my being, that his only accomplishment in his entire life has been becoming buddies with Barack Obama. And it's legitimately the only reason that he ever even was a viable candidate for president in the first place, right? He ran in 1988 and was run off the stage because of, well, something that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. He ran in 2008, didn't stand a chance, ended up becoming the VP nominee for Barack Obama, and then obviously Obama wins the presidency, he becomes the vice president, and all we see of Joe Biden for eight years are pictures of him in aviators like shooting finger guns at Obama in the White House. Like, this is this is the entirety of his presidential campaign, is that I'm friends with Barack Obama. And let's face it, one of the big strengths of his popularity is his popularity with black voters in particular. And does that any of that happen if he isn't seen palling around with Obama for eight years? Again, aviators, finger guns, maybe even a like one of those. No, obviously not. There's no way in hell Joe Biden is as popular with the black vote as he is today if he wasn't buddies with Barack Obama. And frankly, that's one of the only redeeming things that he's got going for him at this point. It's the only thing that hasn't entirely kept him from being written off after a terrible showing in Iowa, what will probably be another pretty bad showing in New Hampshire. They're all relying on that that South Carolina southern wall where there's a ton of black votes down there. As a matter of fact, I think more than 50 percent of the Democratic congregation down there is black votes. So they're assuming that Biden's going to take a wealth of those and he's going to go on to win South Carolina if he even gets there. But in the meantime, Joe does have one other tool in his toolkit that he's very, very good at, and that's plagiarism. Yep. Joe not only plagiarized a speech from Neil Kinnock, who happens to be a former Labour Party leader in the UK, but there's a bunch of other stuff that he's done along the line. That happens to be the most famous instance. And as Maureen Dowd reported at the time, as a matter of fact, I got this clip here from Vox.com, of all places, yes, that's Vox with a V, the uber-liberal site out there, as they reported or I guess as Maureen Dowd reported at the time, according to their quote here, Biden, during a debate 
at the Iowa State Fair essentially replicated Kinnick's speech. Now, this is Neil Kinnick, again, former leader of the Labor Party in the United Kingdom, transposing not just Kinnick's ideas, but facts about his life from Wales to Pennsylvania. Wales is where Kinnick was from, Pennsylvania, where Biden's from. Just making sure everybody's following along. And then they put these quotes side by side. So Kinnick, in his speech, said, Why am I the first Kinnick in a thousand generations to be able to get to university? Why is Glynis, his wife, the first woman in her family in a thousand generations to be able to get to university? Was it because all our predecessors were thick? That's his quote. Now, here's Biden's version of the quote. And it's not a direct quote, but just taken taken to context the context, like think about the actual words that are being said here and taken also taken into consideration Joe Biden, not the most you know eloquent speaker. So Joe says, I started thinking as I was coming over here, why is that Joe why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Why is it that my wife, who is sitting out here in the audience in her is the first in her family to ever go to college? Is it because our fathers and mothers were not too bright? Is it because I'm the first Biden in a thousand generations to get a college and a graduate degree that I was smarter than the rest? So he's literally stealing the exact story from Kinnick there, even using a lot of the same words, including in a thousand generations, which seems, I mean, there's no way that that's an accident, right? So then we go on to another Kinnick quote. He goes on, actually, it's, this is just a continuation of where he was before. He says, did they lack talent? These people who could sing and play and recite and write poetry, those people who could make wonderful, beautiful things with their hands, those people who could dream dreams, see visions, why didn't they get it? Was it because they were weak? Those people who could work eight hours underground and then come up and play football? Weak? That's the end of his quote. Now let's move on to what creepy, sleepy, flippy, floppy Joe has to say. And I quote, those same people who read poetry and wrote poetry and taught me how to sing verse, is it because they didn't work hard? My ancestors who worked in the coal mines of Northeast Pennsylvania and would come up after 12 hours and play football for four hours? Again, Biden, not as eloquent as Kinnick, but the entire story is ripped directly from him. And we'll see in a minute that these are not things that actually happened in Joe Biden's life or his lineage. But let's get to the last set of quotes here. Kinnick, does anybody really think that they didn't get what we had because they didn't have the talent or the strength or the endurance or the commitment? Of course not. It was because there was no platform upon which they could stand. Move over to Biden's quote, and I quote, No, it's not because they weren't as smart. It's not because they didn't work as hard. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. End quote. Now, as, as they point out in this article here, a key thing about this is that Biden is copying not only Kinnick's speech, but he's legitimately copying his life story. Okay, Kinnick's father was a Welsh coal miner. Biden's family lived, broadly speaking, in Pennsylvania coal country, but none of his immediate ancestors were coal miners. His father sold cars. Kinnick was the first in his family to go to college. Biden, as he later admitted, had several college graduates on his mother's side of the family, and one of his great-grandfathers was not just a college graduate, but a state senator. Now, this was back in 1988. So it's not today's Joe who we could probably excuse for not understanding who or where he is because, I mean, if you've seen him speak, you know there's a slight chance that he doesn't know who or where he is. But this is way back in 1988. I was one year old back then. 
a lot of shit has happened since 1988. Joe obviously has gotten older and crazier than ever before, but it still would appear that the man has never actually had an original thought in his life. When you have to plagiarize your autobiography, you have officially failed at life. Unless, unless you could become friends with Barack Obama. But this is not the only time that he's plagiarized. As a matter of fact, it looks like he plagiarized his most recent climate plan for his presidential run. This is a quote, uh, a tweet from Josh Nelson, at Josh underscore Nelson. The paragraph in Joe Biden's climate plan about carbon capture and sequestration includes language that is remarkably similar to items published previously in the Blue-Green Alliance and the Carbon Capture Coalition. So he's stealing the climate plan, he's stealing other people's life stories, but wait, oh wait, there's more. I do have that Vox article in the show notes for you, but he not only did that, but he openly admitted to plagiarizing when he was in school. According to the New York Times, again, left-wing outlet, and I quote, Senator Joe R. Biden Jr. fighting to salvage his presidential campaign today acknowledged, quote, a mistake, unquote, in his youth when he plagiarized a law review article for a paper he wrote in his first year at law school. Mr. Biden insisted, however, that he had done nothing, quote, malevolent, unquote, that he had simply misunderstood the need to cite sources carefully. He misunderstood the need to cite sources carefully. This motherfucker was in law school. Law school? You know, like where you go after you've completed high school and undergrad? This guy was in law school and, quote, misunderstood the need to cite sources carefully, unquote. Get the fuck out of here. Okay, that is ridiculous. And, oh, I didn't do anything malevolent. Oh, well, if you say so, Joe, in that case, it, you know what? This is this is why Joe is in the situation he's in today is because he just he says, oh, it wasn't malevolent. The New York Times writes an article. Oh, well, he said it wasn't malevolent. Let's just move on. And that's why he thinks he can get away with, oh, no, you know, what my son was doing in Ukraine, nothing to see there. It's not malevolent, folks. Uh, you could take me at my word. I'm lunch bucket Joe. He doesn't sound like that. And I don't do a good Biden because I I'm not nearly senile enough to get there. But um, New York Times and Vox, these are the two articles I present you to show you that Joe Biden has never had an original thought in his life. And that gets me to his family members, which have been enriching themselves under his last name for a long-ass time, it appears. But fortunately for us, his son's a dope and probably got his whole family caught as a result. I, uh, again, present this information on behalf of Peter Schweitzer, who wrote the book, I believe he wrote Secret Empires, he wrote Clinton Cash, he also wrote a recent one that I believe is called Profiles in Corruption, and a lot of this information is from that. He's also been writing a bunch of articles, kind of summarizing a lot of the stuff that's relevant to today's storylines, um, and he's been doing that in the New York Post, so I have the articles in the show notes for you. Let's start with James Biden, the brother of Joe Biden. He served as a finance chair of Joe's 1972 Senate campaign and joined Joe on congressional delegations to places like Ireland, Rome, and Africa. So James already getting a few free vacations on taxpayer dollars, but wait, there's more. Enter the case of Hillstone International, a subsidiary of a huge construction management firm called Hill International. The president of Hillstone International is a guy named Kevin Justice, who grew up in Delaware and was a longtime Biden family friend. On November 4th, 2010, according to White House visitor logs, Justice 
visited the White House and met with Biden advisor Michelle Smith in the office of the vice president. Three weeks later, James is announced to be joining the firm as an executive vice president, despite having no previous experience involving housing construction. This seems to be a pattern with the Bidens, who appear to constantly get jobs that they're not qualified for, which pay a startling amount of money. James Biden was joining Hillstone just as the firm was starting negotiations to win a massive contract in war-torn Iraq. Six months later, the firm announced a contract to build 100,000 homes in Iraq. It was part of a $35 billion 500,000-unit project deal that was won by a company called Track Development, a South Korean company. So, 100,000 homes out of a 500,000-unit project. The project was about $35 billion. Quick math here. Looks like that 100,000 homes in Iraq was worth about, assuming all of those units were equal, about $7 billion. This guy had no experience, again, none, in housing construction, meets at the White House, gets put on the board of this company, and then that company mysteriously wins a massive contract to build 100,000 homes in war-torn Iraq to the tune of $7 billion, presumably. Hillstone also received a $22 million U.S. federal government contract to manage a construction project for the State Department. So that's a lot of money flowing into Hillstone as a direct result of them putting James Biden on their board while James's brother, creepy, sleepy, flippy, floppy, sloppy, malarkey Joe, is sitting as the vice president of the country. Now, David Richter, who's the son of the parent company's founder, I believe that's Hill International they're referring to this time around, he was not shy about explaining Hillstone's success in securing government contracts. It really helps, he told investors at a private meeting, to have, quote, the brother of the vice president as a partner, end quote. So there you have it, folks. He's just basically openly admitting that we get government contracts because we have the brother of the vice president sitting on our board. And that Iraq contract that they got, that project was massive and perhaps the single most lucrative project that the firm had ever had. And in 2012, a year after this, Charles Gasparino of Fox Business reported that Hillstone officials expected the project to generate $1.5 billion in revenue over the next three years. That amounted to more than three times the revenue that the company produced in 2011. That's, that's, it, that's shady, but there's worse, far worse, and let's get into it. Frank Biden, another brother of Joe Biden, he, Frank that is, attended a trip to Costa Rica with the vice president where he met the president as well as the ministers of education and energy about developing high-end real estate and a country club in the Costa Rican jungle. None of this seems like anything that would be involved with you know, what our vice president is there to go talk about. Why would he be there talking about high-end real estate and country clubs in the Costa Rican jungle? Also, he's a Democrat. So if they were to tear down one square inch of that Costa Rican jungle and he were to be connected to it in any way, shape, or form, they would tie him to a stake and set him on fire. Also, moving on, Frank Biden received a couple of big dollar loans from the U.S. government to help finance these projects, even weirder, 
That's something you take out a private loan for. That's most certainly not something that we, the taxpayers, should be loaning him money for so he can go build high-end real estate and country clubs in another country. Frankly, pun intended, this is another instance of a Biden getting a lot of money to perform a job that he isn't qualified for, as Frank, again, had no such experience in building such a development. And that's just the business end of things. Frank Biden also happens to be a terrible human being. Frank Biden was found partially legally responsible for the death of Michael Albano in August of 1999, but has never acknowledged his liability or paid any compensation, not even turning up for a single court hearing, meaning that the case was a default judgment. Albano died when he was hit on foot crossing the road on Highway 101 in Cardiff-by-the-Sea besides Encinitas, California, when the high-powered Jaguar XK8 convertible rented by Frank Biden hit him at as much as 80 miles per hour. The speed limit was 35. Biden, then 43, was riding shotgun when he shifted the 290-horsepower car into manual and told the driver Jason Turton, 25, to, quote, punch it, end quote, just before hitting Albano. Biden was allegedly heard saying, quote, keep driving, unquote, and Turton fled the scene, telling police someone advised him to, while other passengers in the car said, quote, everyone was drinking, end quote. And on a related note, despite claiming to be a recovering alcoholic, Joe Biden has a string of DUIs as well as other driving offenses, and earlier this month, I believe this was January, he was seen driving with a suspended license, in Florida. No respect for human life, no respect for the rule of law, all he respects is the money that his brother's name is able to get him. If these people had any shame, I assume they would be ashamed in themselves. But let's not keep to just the men. No, no, this is an equal opportunity podcast here. If you're a woman and you're corrupt as fuck, I will call you out for that as well. Valerie Biden, Owens, Joe's sister Valerie, ran all of his Senate campaigns as well as his presidential runs in 1988 and 2008. wonder if she's running the current one. And if she's not running the current one, is it because the previous two were such abysmal disasters that she wasn't hired again? Keep that in mind as I'm about to tell you how much money she was able to rake in during those previous campaigns. Let's get back to this, uh, this little clip here. Uh, but she was also a senior partner in a political messaging firm named Joe Slade White and Company, the only two executives listed at the firm were Joe Slade White and Valerie Biden-Owens. Weird. The firm received large fees from the Biden campaigns that Valerie was running. Two and a half million dollars in consulting fees flowed to her firm from Citizens for Biden and Biden for President Inc. during the 2008 presidential bid alone. So this company that was founded by Joe Biden's sister, has two executives listed on the board, got $2.5 million to run one of the worst presidential campaigns in the history of the world. Now, granted, their labor is worth something. I'm not saying that they shouldn't make any money if, in fact, they were actually working on these campaigns, but got to tell you, this company reeks of shell organization. I mean, the fact that there's only two executives on the board, one of them is Biden, the other one's the namesake of the company. Joe Slade White seems like a rather generic name, too, by the way. But let's assume Joe Slade White exists, right? This is sketchy from just the beginning of it. I mean, if, if people had found this out at the time, it would have sunk what was an already sinking campaign even further down. But it, it is kind of curious that this article, which was written recently, doesn't mention that Valerie Biden-Owens is running his current campaign. 
And again, I ask, is that because of performance? And if it was because of performance, then was the original performance, or at least the one in 2008, that was worth $2.5 million? Was it worth $2.5 million? And how do you make that assessment without any actual performance or positive performance to back it up? Seems, again, just a little weird. But there's more from the ladies of the Biden family, Ashley Biden. So let's get back into this article here from Peter Schweitzer from the New York Post. A $166,000 federal grant was awarded to a Delaware nonprofit about the same time that then-Vice President Joe Biden's daughter, Ashley, was named as an executive director of the organization called Delaware Center for Justice two months after the grant was received. Okay. Ashley Biden's nonprofit organization, quote, was selected to locally coordinate this two-year grant, end quote, in Delaware, she wrote in the group's 2015 annual report. The DOJ grant was a significant portion of the Delaware Center for Justice's revenue, according to its annual reports. The prior year, the group brought in a total of $768,305 in revenue. That increased to $1,517,854, according to the 2015 report, due to an uptick in both government funding and foundation grants. Yes, even the ladies of the Biden family Crooked is all hell. Shouldn't be all that surprising, but this is where it gets really bad for me, personally. Not because what happens here is particularly egregious or nefarious, but just the level of growth that occurs for this gentleman's company that I'm about to talk about here. It's disturbing how this went unnoticed. Let's get into Howard Crine, who is Joe's son-in-law and the husband of Ashley Biden. From the article, Startup Health is an investment consultancy based out of New York City, and in June of 2011, the company barely had a website. Startup Health was barely up and running when, in June of 2011, two of the company's executives were ushered into the Oval Office of the White House. They met with President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden. The following day, the new company would be featured at a large healthcare tech conference run by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Very strange. And Startup Health executives became regular visitors to the White House, attending events in 2011, 2014, and 2015. This clearly helped their profile and took them from unknown startup to, according to them, and I quote, Meet the world's largest digital health portfolio with 300-plus companies spanning six continents, 25 countries, and 70-plus cities, end quote. In July of 2017, they disclosed the following in their funding report, and I quote, The total raised in the second quarter was $3.8 billion, adding up to $6.5 billion to date this year, end quote. So in the first half of 2017, they made $6.5 billion. That's more than a billion dollars a month. June 2011, barely had a website, met at the White House, going to state-sponsored events, six years later, making a billion dollars a month. That's fucking crazy. And there's really no other way of saying that. How does that happen any other way than through corruption? That's just, that's, that's mind-blowing. That's the, the, to me, that's the most ridiculous one of all of them. Must be nice to know creepy people in high places. 
And again, that's Howard Crine, who is once again Joe's son-in-law. That brings us to everybody's favorite degenerate, yes, Robert Hunter Biden. Now, we all know this story, right? Discharged from the military for using cocaine. Biden tested positive for cocaine during a urinalysis test and was subsequently discharged from the military. Biden attributed the results of the test, and I'm not making this up, to smoking cigarettes that he had accepted from other smokers who he later suspected had maybe put drugs in the cigarettes. Now, anyone who's ever spent any time around cocaine addicts or people who use cocaine, those those two words are the same, no one ever casually uses cocaine, um, a cokehead is not just giving their coke away. Uh, I mean, like, maybe, maybe this guy put a little bit of coke in some of his cigarettes or whatever the case may be, and he accidentally gave one to Hunter Biden. Maybe but most certainly was not done willingly. That said, as somebody who knows a thing or two about drug tests, cocaine is out of your system in three to five days, usually. And if you're in the military and you're like active three tops, if you haven't actually done it and you're remaining hydrated, that means that the timing of that urinalysis test was perfect. Otherwise, it would have been out of his system in four days. So not only was Hunter using cocaine, folks, he was using it with regularity, okay? That, that, that would be a one in a million shot if they just so happen to catch him for the reasons that he's stating, and I don't buy it, mostly because I don't buy anything that these fucking people say, and it's hard to if you have, you know, two brain cells to rub together. And here we go. He was obviously working at Burisma Holdings, a Ukrainian energy company. Hunter, of course, had no experience in energy, didn't speak Ukrainian, was only obligated to attend board meetings a couple of times a year and was paid much more than other board members who actually served a functional purpose within the organization, one would assume, and was hired as admitted by himself and Burisma Holdings founder Mikola Zlochevsky because of his last name. Also, at the same time, they brought in the former president of Poland to add high-profile members to their board. And that all happens precisely because... And during the time that Zlochevsky and Kolomoisky, who we will talk more about as we get to the end of the show, both of them are under investigation in Ukraine and the United Kingdom, and they need someone with influence to help make all of their problems go away. Hmm. I wonder who they got. Oh, that's right. I'm talking about him right now. Also, after claiming that he's not wealthy in repeated interviews... He is recently seen emerging from a brand new Porsche, rolling up in front of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel with his pregnant wife on the same week that he decides that he's going to settle with the courts and with his baby mama to pay child support that he claimed he couldn't afford previously because, and only because, he was under threat of having to submit five years of financial records to the courts, and so he said he couldn't afford it. They said, give us five years of financials. Suddenly, he was like, oh, wait, yeah, no, I can afford that. I don't have to do that. I could give you the money. I'll find it somewhere. I'll talk to Dad. Oh, and by the way, the stripper that he slept with in Arkansas, yeah, he did that while he was dating his brother's widow, who he left his first wife to date, and then left her to marry the woman that he's now married to and is carrying his child, in addition to, you know, the stripper from Arkansas who's carrying his child. Seems like a stand-up guy. The media tells you that no one saw any problems with Hunter Biden's behavior whatsoever. No one, you know, except for, of course, that January 2016 meeting in the White House where the Ukrainian officials were there explicitly to talk about 
the corruption that was going on in Burisma and Hunter Biden's potential involvement in it and the fact that he was going to be investigated. That is, of course, until the White House managed to make it all go away. Oh, and by the way, there's another guy who seemed to have some problems with what Hunter Biden was doing, a guy who, you know, if he said anything about Donald Trump, it would be heralded as of the highest integrity because of who his father is. But John Kerry's stepson, Chris Hines, son of uh, John Kerry's wife, something Hines, who just so happens to be the heir to the Hines ketchup fortune, so buy Hunt's ketchup, folks, otherwise your money goes to fund all this nonsense. But John Kerry's stepson, Chris Hines, was a business partner of Hunter Biden. Emphasis on was. The following comes from the Washington Post. And I quote, But another partner in their investment firm raised serious concerns. Chris Hines, Carrie's stepson, told Archer, this is Devin Archer, another business partner at Rosemont Seneca with Hunter Biden, that joining Burisma was a bad idea, according to a spokesman for Hines. Hines was concerned about reports of corruption in Ukraine, geopolitical risks, and general questions about appearance. And then there's an actual quote here from the representative. So this is a quote within a quote. So I don't know how this works. But and I quote, Mr. Hines strongly warned Mr. Archer that working with Burisma was unacceptable. Mr. Archer stated that he and Hunter Biden intended to pursue the opportunity as individuals, not as part of the firm. End quote. Hines's spokesperson, Chris Bastardi, told The Post. The decision fractured the firm. Now, let's also... Take into consideration here. Let's take a step back. Hines said, this is Kerry's stepson. This doesn't look good. You guys shouldn't be doing this. And it fractures their firm. He cuts ties with Archer and Biden because he sees what's going on here. He is worried about corruption in Ukraine, geopolitical risks, and general questions about appearances. This is from the article. Hines leaves the company. But before he does, he has a conversation with Archer. And Archer tells him that they plan on pursuing this opportunity as individuals, not as part of the firm, which is very strange because we have the documents of Burisma paying these two, you guessed it, through the firm. It was never directly deposited into any of their bank accounts personally. It was all going back to Rosemont Seneca. Unless there's proof of that otherwise, at a minimum I know that some of that money went in to Rosemont Seneca because I've seen those documents. Glenn Beck actually had them on the show that he was doing later, uh, that was doing earlier last week, I guess. Going back to the article here, the lack of judgment in this matter was a major catalyst for Mr. Hines ending his business relationships with Mr. Archer and Mr. Biden, Bestardi said, adding that Hines and his investment firm were never involved with Burisma. Archer could not be reached for comment, his lawyer did not respond to requests for comment. Awesome. So Archer is a ghost. Like, he's just doing everything he can to hide in the corner, right? Because Hunter Biden blew his spot up. John Kerry's kid was smart enough to know Hunter Biden was going to blow his spot up. And he got out of Dodge before the spot was blown up. And now all we're left with is Hunter Biden and his multiple kids from multiple women, his, his Porsche, and his claims of poverty. Yeah. All of that adds up to liberals, I assume, who just aren't very good at math, logic, or reasoning. And that is not even the tip of the spear with Hunter Biden. Let me tell you a little something about Romania. 
Yeah, he wasn't just doing this stuff in Ukraine either, and it's going to get worse. But Romania, let's start there. And this comes from an NBC News article, sure enough, and I quote, In the final year of the Obama administration, an American lawyer traveled to Romania to meet with a businessman accused of orchestrating a corrupt land deal. The businessman was Gabriel Puiu Papaviciu. That's the best pronunciation you're getting from me. He's a wealthy Romanian real estate uh, tycoon, and the lawyer brought in to advise him was... Go ahead, guys. Go ahead, take a guess. Yep, Hunter Biden, of course, the son of then-Vice President Joe Biden, according to two people familiar with the matter. Hunter Biden's work for Popovicu in 2016 went unreported at the time, but Joe Biden's involvement in Romania was very much public. The vice president was among the leading voices pushing the government to crack down on corruption. It's fucking bizarre. It's really weird to just read this out loud now. The article continues, there's no evidence that Hunter or his father acted improperly or violated any laws, but the arrangement, government ethics experts say, raises concerns that Hunter Biden was used as a prop in Papaviciu's effort to dodge criminal prosecution. Sounds very familiar. Sounds almost like exactly what Slochevsky and Kolomoisky were doing in Ukraine. You don't know who Kolomoisky is yet? Keep your pants on. We're going to get there. Going back to the article, and I quote, Actually, it's a quote within a quote. Again, I don't know how this works. We don't know what Hunter Biden was paid or what he was paid for, but it does raise questions of whether this Romanian individual facing criminal charges was actually paying for a connection to the American vice president, end quote, said Kathleen Clark, a Washington University law professor who specializes in government ethics. So yet another country where Joe Biden is running our foreign policy just so happens to have some corrupt real estate tycoon who just so happens to need legal representation because he's corrupt as all hell, and he coincidentally chooses the vice president of the United States' son who has little to no actual experience practicing law, and that's just okay with everybody. Sure. All right. Let's move on to China, or as our president calls it, China. China. Six facts about Hunter Biden's business dealings in China, a New York Post article written by Peter Schweitzer again. I'm going to breeze through these relatively quickly, I hope. Number one, Joe Biden met with Hunter's Chinese partners days before they established a new investment firm. In December of 2013, Hunter Biden landed in Beijing aboard Air Force Two, accompanying his father on an official visit to China. So we're paying for his trips to China so he can go make a boatload of money off of his last name, and he's not even willing to pay for the flight there. We've got to cover that. Lovely. Less than two weeks later, Hunter's company, Rosemont Seneca, became a partner in a new investment company backed by the state-owned Bank of China. My God. Oh, my God. The fucking state-owned Bank of China. Really? Can you imagine? Imagine. Imagine for a second any of the Trump kids had any business dealings with the state-owned Bank of China. Imagine it. It's amazing. Joe Biden is like one of the few Democrats that was willing to talk about how China was eating our lunch and all that sort of stuff for a period of time. He He's backed off of that. I don't know if it has anything to do with this, but it's very, very weird that his son is not only doing business deals with a company associated with the state-owned Bank of China, but he's taking Air Force Two to get there and make these deals. Continuing. Christening the new firm Bohai Harvest RST, or BHR, as I'll be referring to them from now on, 
the partners set out to raise $1 billion for the new fund. $1 billion. <laughs> Representatives of the Biden family have denied any connection between the vice president's visit and Hunter's business. However, a BHR representative told The New Yorker earlier this year that Hunter used the opportunity to introduce his father to Chinese private equity executive Jonathan Lee, who, of course, became CEO of BHR after the deal's conclusion. Strange. Just It's just a bunch of coincidences, folks, I'm telling you. Number two, BHR is a multi-billion dollar enterprise exceeding their initial fundraising goal. The partners of BHR raised their target to $1.5 billion for the new fund. The company's website now brags that it manages over RBM $15 billion in assets, the equivalent of about $2.1 billion in today's dollars, American. Under the terms of the deal, BHR, in which Hunter's firm held an equity stake, would be a lead investor in the fund. Other investors include China Development Bank, and China's Social Security Fund. All right, number three, Hunter and his partners had prominent roles within the company. Despite his relative lack of private equity experience, go figure, Hunter landed a prominent role with the new company. Under the terms of the original deal, Rosemont Seneca, Hunter's firm, shared a 30% stake in BHR with the Thornton Group, which was run by James Bulger, the son of longtime Massachusetts Senate President Billy Bulger, also, by the way, grandson of known gangster Whitey Bulger. I'm sure there's nothing further to delve into on that. Number four, BHR represented a unique investment opportunity. BHR's relationships weren't the only unique thing about the company. Rosemont Seneca was getting a piece of something no other Western firm had, a private equity fund inside the recently established Shanghai Free Trade Zone with a focus on international acquisitions. With the backing of the state-owned Bank of China, one of the country's big four financial institutions, BHR had access to the types of deals that most Western firms only dreamed of, including IPOs of state-owned companies. Number five, BHR invested in strategically sensitive assets in both China and the United States. In December of 2014, BHR became an anchor investor in the IPO of China General Nuclear Power Company, otherwise known as CGN, a state-owned nuclear company involved in the development of nuclear reactors. Not only is CGN a strategically important company in China, it was also facing legal scrutiny in the United States. In 2016, CGN was charged with espionage by the Justice Department for stealing U.S. nuclear secrets. Lovely. As a cross-border investment fund, Bohai Harvest, or BHR as I've been calling them, was interested in making deals outside of China. In 2015, BHR acquired Hennige's, H-E-N-N-I-G-E-S, Hennige's Automotive, a Michigan-based producer of vibration dampening equipment alongside Chinese military contractor Aviation Industry Corp of China, or AVIC, A-V-I-C. Given the military applications of Hennage's technology, the deal required federal approval. Like CGN, AVIC was suspected of stealing U.S. technology for its purposes. Not long 
After the Hennages deal closed, AVIC debuted its new J-20 fighter incorporating designs allegedly stolen from the U.S.'s F-35 program. Now, all right, quick pause on all this sort of stuff here. So this, this, this company, this nuclear power company, buys this automotive company that's producing vibration dampening equipment. Also buying, also involved in the deal is Chinese military contractor Aviation Industry Corp of China, AVIC. And this all needs federal approval, despite the fact that these companies are both under investigation and being charged with crimes by our Justice Department. I wonder how that federal approval managed to take place. It's not like the Chinese have a guy on the inside whose dad is the... Oh, fuck, they do. Oh, man. Now, I don't think Hunter Biden is personally handing over, like, private military information. I don't think he has it, but he was certainly involved in it. And I'm I'm even going to cut him some slack in that I'm sure he wasn't smart enough to figure out that they were using him, right? Like, he was just cashing the checks and didn't really think much of it, thinking like, okay, what are they going to really do besides steal our nuclear secrets and our military technology? I, I mean, not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things, I guess. I mean... That's the spin anyway. I, I, in 2015, a state-banked real estate conglomerate acquired a controlling stake in Rosemont Realty, a sister company of Rosemont Seneca, where Hunter served as an advisor. This guy's an advisor everywhere now. It's amazing. As part of the deal, the Chinese promised $3 billion for commercial office property acquisitions in the United States, a major windfall for the company. It wouldn't be Hunter's last episode with Chinese capital. In May of 2017, he met with Yi Jianming, chairman of Chinese energy company CEFC, to discuss investment opportunities in the U.S. After the meeting, Yi sends a 2.8 carat diamond to Hunter along with a thank you card when, six months later, a CEFC executive was arrested in New York on related bribery charges. His first phone call was to Hunter's uncle James. James told the New York Times that, quote, he believed it, the call, had been meant for Hunter, end quote, and that, quote, he passed on his nephew's contact information, end quote. Xi and Ming, by the way, would quickly discover that Hunter had no actual experience practicing law and would talk to James Biden again before getting an actual lawyer to represent his, his client or his, his employee at that point. So that's Hunter Biden, right? Sitting on a board in Ukraine he's not qualified for, working for a Chinese company that that's run by the State Bank of China that he's probably not qualified for. He's sitting on advisory boards or real estate companies is also probably not qualified for. Meanwhile, he's making all this money coming left, right, and center. He claims he doesn't have any money to pay the stripper in Arkansas until the bank, uh, until the courts say we're going to need to see some bank records, in which case he's like, yeah, you know what? Never mind. I got that money. This is all going on while he's driving his brand new Porsche with his pregnant wife and, and pulling into the Waldorf Astoria, pretending like nothing's wrong, that his father's campaign hasn't been completely set on fire by the fact that he's an inept boob, um, Hunter and Joe. Maybe it's a genetic thing, honestly. It took me a second to figure out which one I was talking about. But that's that's it. I mean, that's Hunter Biden. He's the most corrupt of all of them because I think he, I think he just looked at the rest of the family and was like, oh, they're all making it rich. Hold my beer see how fucking rich I can get. And he went, he made billion dollar deals with China and he's working for all these gangsters in Ukraine making all this sort of money. And then he's like pretending that he's never actually seeing any money from any of this, which is another thing that's hilarious to me. If you're putting in all this effort to do all these deals that look really bad and you're not making money off of it, you're an even bigger idiot than I thought you were. But 
That leads me all in to the Ukraine final piece. We're not done with Hunter Biden just yet. We're going to get back into a deeper dive in what exactly was going on in Ukraine, what exactly Trump was talking about on that phone call. But because we're going to need a quick mental reset, because that's going to, I'm going to hit you with a lot of information there. I've got a quick rant I'd like to go on, and I'm going to do that right after this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to play a little bit of the song in hopes that iTunes doesn't kill me. And my apologies to my friends over at Rat Salad Review. I am going to make you listen to about 30 seconds of Taylor Swift. You can fast forward if you'd like, but that's what the rant's about. So you want to hear the song so that you know why I'm freaking out about it. And let's go ahead, play that music right now, and then I'll be right back a ranting away right here on The Right Opinion. I'm so sick of running as fast as I can. All right, as always, I feel like I need to explain why I care about these things. Um, Andrew Breitbart once eloquently and masterfully stated that politics is downstream of culture. And this is culture, right? This is Taylor Swift. She's one of the biggest most famous people in the world. She's wealthier than we'll ever even fully understand, even when somebody else buys all of her music and takes the rights away from her, for which I feel bad, zero. Um, Not just because she's already got enough money. I don't believe in enough money. Um, But I believe in good lawyers and uh, shitty contracts. And as somebody who's got a little bit of experience in the music world, I I get it, (laughs) okay? Somebody saw a, a young starlet and was like, I am going to make bank on this chick, and she was this ho-hum girl from Tennessee, and her parents didn't get a good enough lawyer, and now she doesn't have any of her music. I mean, that's that's the reality of the situation, no matter how they want to spin it. But politics is downstream of this, right? So if we allow this stupidity to fester and perpetuate now, this spreads to our children who grow up to have votes, and then they vote in fucking communists, which is almost exactly what's happening today. So, Taylor Swift in her song, The Man, the chorus runs as follows, in case you didn't quite pick it up there. Actually, I'm going to have friend of the show, Bernie Sanders, read these. Burn. I'm so sick of running as fast as I can, wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man. I'm so sick of them coming at me again, because if I was a man, then I'd be the man. I'd be the man. Thanks, you commie bastard. So I'm sorry, feminists. Actually, I'm not because your dismay actually brings me great joy. But if you're looking for a woman to exemplify the struggles of womanhood, you might want to pick someone who isn't one of the most famous, wealthiest, outspoken, wholly accepted women on planet Earth. There are women in the world, for those of you unaware, that will be stoned to death if even a single droplet of sunlight should touch their ankle. Maybe we should start there if we're going to start with women who are oppressed and need empowerment. Also, side note, Taylor, if you were a man, you would definitely get there quicker. Not in your deranged little metaphor, but in the reality where men typically run faster than women. I mean, is that a that there's a bell curve somewhere in there, but the fastest men always outrun the fastest women. As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago at the Olympics, the guy who finished last in the uh, I think it was the hundred meter, the guy who finished last in the hundred meter would have broken the woman's world record. So give make of that what you will but yes you would physically have gotten there quicker if you were a man metaphorically you would not have gone to where you are today if you were a man now she thinks she's somehow oppressed because she's mocked for 
never, and this is another part of the song that I didn't play, is that she's talked about, you know, like, I'd be in relationships and people would just be like, oh, that's cool, like, good for you, you're just out there sowing your wild oats, instead of, like, the the criticism that she gets for going through as many boyfriends as she does. I mean, I haven't heard that criticism a whole lot recently, but maybe she's getting it in her personal life fair enough. But, sweetie, let me put this in context for you. You're hot as hell, you're richer than Scrooge McDuck, and you have access to virtually anything you want in the entire world. You're the type of person that if you weren't a deranged leftist, or at least pretending to be for the public's appeal, you could possibly be meeting with the president. Like You could pick up a single phone and make a single phone call and talk to the president of the United States or somebody in the White House and get a meeting and go discuss whatever batshit crazy social issues that your fans want you to discuss, but you won't do that. You know why you won't do that? Because it's the same reason that you can't hold a man. It's because you're crazy. Furthermore, she's actually under the disillusion that her life would be better if she was a man. Really? Because I'm fairly certain the only reason that anyone cares about anything that you have to say, Tay-Tay, is because you were once a cute little girl with teardrops on your guitar, and now you're this tall, leggy, blonde bombshell. If you were a man, you'd be selling Christmas trees back on your daddy's farm, where you probably belong anyway. Oh, and by the way, Tay-Tay, if you want to be a man, just call a press conference tomorrow and make the announcement. I, Taylor Swift, am a transgender man. Conveniently... I don't even need to change my first name. And then poof, all of your problems go away, right? Because we now live in a world where you could just say you're a man and you are a man. Because, you know, you're this big champion of LGBTQ ideology now, right? Well, then play it out. If you if you want to be a man, you think your life would be so much better if you were a man, and you support these people who are over here saying that all you got to do is pretty much declare yourself a man and you could be a man, go ahead Declare yourself a man and see how much better your life is. I mean, worst case scenario is that now you'll be a transgender man and you can play that victim card if you want, but what'll actually happen is that you'll declare yourself a man and you'll simultaneously find out how absurd your hypothesis is, is that your life would be better if you were a man, and how insane the trans modern gender theory is. By the way, there's definitely a future episode coming up on modern gender theory. I've done one in the past under previous names and other shows. It's an evergreen topic, frankly. It's one I'll keep in my back pocket for a month that I don't have anything. Otherwise, I'll wait till Pride Month, but that's coming, folks, and it's coming in all of its splendor, and I'm going to have a ball with that. So in conclusion here, Taylor, I hate to tell you this, but you are already the man, okay? <laughs> How much better do you think your life would be if you were a man? How much better do you think your life could possibly be if you were a man? Also, as a man in 2020, I can tell you it's not all butterflies and rainbows, okay? We have to step on eggshells virtually 24-7 nowadays to make sure that we don't trigger some wacko like yourself into having us canceled for forgetting to say God bless you to every woman who sneezed within a country mile of my current whereabouts for fear of being branded an evil misogynist. So please, spare me your nonsense about how your life would be so much better if you were a man. Tell you what, I'll fucking trade you tomorrow. Okay, I'd rather I'd rather be a smoking hot blonde and get all of the perks that come along with that than being a smoking hot, you know, white dude. Okay, and and granted, I am still smoking hot, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, it, look, Taylor, your life would not be better if you were a man. Your life would be nothing if you were a man. You would just be some man selling Christmas trees on your daddy's farm again. 
like I mentioned at the beginning, because it's true. That's precisely where you'd be. It's funny, because I am a bit of a music head, and I actually don't mind Taylor Swift's music, or at least I didn't up until she went, like, full pop. But, like, think of all of the men that have come and gone since Taylor Swift has risen to power. Think about all of the very talented male songwriters that have, that have, I mean, they're still making music and stuff like that, but they're not touted nearly on the level of a Taylor Swift, even though when they produce far greater music, I mean, I'm just thinking of like random names off the top of my head that have come, that have been out there, just single solo artists. And I'm going to miss a million of them, but I'm thinking like, even like the Ed Sheeran's of the world or like, yeah, they're popular, but they're not put on that level, the the Philip Phillipses of the world, like these random, like kind of almost like one-off guys that wrote these really good songs or a couple of songs and then they poof, disappear into the night. Why? Because the next, you know, cute boy singer came around and the women didn't care about him anymore. And the men were always ashamed to admit that they liked them in the first place. I have friends to this day that will still pretend they don't like John Mayer. I had a friend who his group of friends in college, it was like one of their three rules is that in order to be in the group, you needed to hate John Mayer. I was not in because I was not one of those people. Even though I was one of those people who pretend I hated things that I didn't hate, I could never pretend I didn't like John Mayer. John Mayer is a hell of a songwriter. He's got like five to six, you know, five to ten really good songs on every album he's ever put out. He's a tremendous guitar player, a tremendous lyric writer, not the greatest singer, but he makes it work for him. John Mayer should be a million times more famous than Taylor Swift is, and he's not. You know why? Because he's not a hot blonde. And if he was, he would be, and I... I defy anyone to tell me otherwise anyway enough with taylor swift the man she finally watched like did she just watch wrestlemania or royal rumble or whatever it is like she just caught up to what wwe has been doing with becky lynch for the last year and a half sad it's very sad it's too bad she's a woman maybe she could do something about it anyway (laughs) that's the end of that segment let's get in to ukraine the final piece this is uh, presented by glenn beck and Blaze TV, they did the deep dive on this. I am not going to take an ounce of credit for any of this other than I'm putting it out on the airwaves here because this is all super important information that I feel like everyone should have in their back pocket. And it gives us a lot more context regarding the Trump phone call, Hunter Biden's involvement, Joe Biden's involvement, Barack Obama's involvement, John Kerry's involvement. You have to wait till the very end to get all those pieces put back together. But let's dive in to Blaze TV's Ukraine, the final piece, or as I like to call it, Obama's secret war. Here we go. I teased this guy a little earlier on, but let me formally introduce you to a gentleman by the name, and I use the term gentleman quite sarcastically, Igor Kolomoisky. He is an owner of Burisma Holdings. Interesting. Not entirely nefarious on its own, but... Let's dive a little deeper. Mr. Kolomoisky was on a U.S. visa ban list for being involved in, quote, murders and beheadings. Yes, he was hiring gangs to grab bats and iron bars and, yes, even chainsaws to intimidate rival companies. This sort of adds a whole new context to the comment that Joe made, Joe Biden, that is, to his son, Hunter, when he said, I sure hope to hell you know what you're doing. Now it starts to make a little bit more sense why he would say something like that, because he's working with a guy who will fucking cut your head off with a goddamn chainsaw. Anyway, magically, Kolomoisky gets that new visa to go to the U.S. shortly after Hunter Biden joins the board at Burisma, a company he's an owner of. 
Also worth note, Kolomoisky is regarded by Forbes as the third richest man in Ukraine behind a gentleman by the name of Viktor Pinchuk, who is one of, if not the biggest donors to the Clintons, and another guy by the name of Renat Akhmetchin, or Akhmedov, rather, who is also loosely involved in the case against Manafort. Why are all of these wealthy Ukrainian oligarchs so heavily involved in U.S. politics? Seems pretty weird. Anyway... So Kolomoisky, right, he is one of the owners of Burisma, and he's under investigation by the United Kingdom for laundering money through a bank in London, just like the other head of Burisma, Mikola Zlochevsky, the guy who presumably brought Hunter Biden in to work there in the first place. And I thought Zlochevsky was a bad guy, but then, you know, there's this guy with the chainsaws. So Kolomoisky laundered this money through Bank of Ukraine to a shell company in Cyprus, where it just so happens that Burisma is actually located, their home office is located technically in Cyprus, to a Latvian bank, to a United Kingdom bank in London. It was then that the United Kingdom caught it, and they froze those assets, just like they did with Zlochevsky. Now, why Latvia? Latvia is world-renowned for the ease in which you can launder money there. They have very, very loose banking regulations, as well as Cyprus also has those same conditions there. And like I mentioned, that's where Burisma's home office is located. Now, while these instances of money laundering are going on and are caught by the United Kingdom, Hunter Biden joins the board of Burisma Holdings while his father is overseeing foreign policy in the region as the acting vice president of the United States. And while that is all happening... Joe Biden, Vice President of the United States, John Kerry, Secretary of State of the United States, are lobbying for $1.8 billion to bail out the banking system in Ukraine. Now, quick pause from my notes here. I'm going to ramble off the top here. This is, again, another instance of I have a lot of Ukrainians in my life nowadays. I talk to a lot of them about this sort of stuff, those that are willing to talk to me about the corruption in their motherland. And um, I've basically been told that basically the banking system in Ukraine is... Nothing more than a piggy bank, and frankly, if you go back in to get your money and it's still there, it's a miracle. Um, Friends of mine that have people who work in the Ukraine, or at least have partnered with companies in Ukraine, like they'll brag, oh yeah, I got this contract with this company in Ukraine, and then they show up later and be like, yeah, that whole thing fell through, they defaulted, and I never got any of the money. So Ukraine, their banking system is in shambles. This $1.8 billion, though, does get released and sent to Ukraine to supposedly bail out their banking system, and the money disappeared into a single bank account in a single bank called Privat Bank, a bank that would later go on to be nationalized as a result of the banking crisis in Ukraine. It was the only bank nationalized, and three years later, the courts in Ukraine would rule that the nationalization of the bank was illegal, but the bank basically declared, well, it's too late to kind of undo it now. The whole bank would fall apart. More on Privat Bank in just a moment. And the money? Well, once it got deposited into Bravat Bank, that was the last time anyone's seen it. Just poof, gone, a ghost. Now, this is all pointing back to a letter I've talked about a few times on this show. There's a gentleman by the name of George Kent, who is one of the diplomats in the area on behalf of the United States. He also just so happened to be one of the star witnesses for the Democrats in the House impeachment hearing. 
Now, the letter is now more significant than ever because it appeared at the time like he was telling the prosecutor general to not look into people that were, a were, that were tied to ANTAC, which is a Soros-funded group and a U.S. taxpayer group that's supposed to be overseeing corruption in the country at that time. It looked like that is initially what he was referencing in the letter, but it turns out that the prosecutor general, Shokin, who was later removed at Biden's bequest because he demanded it, actually. He said, you're not getting the billion dollars unless this prosecutor is removed. That prosecutor was looking in to this $1.8 billion that was deposited into Pravat Bank and then poof, disappeared. George Kent, again, Democrat witness for the House impeachment hearing and a diplomat in the region on behalf of the United States, writes a letter to the Ukraine prosecutor general. And in that letter, the following quotes appear. First one is, I, and I quote, I'd like to make it clear, the United States has no concerns about the use of our funds for our joint project with the Joint Prosecutor General's Office, end quote. So the joint project is ANTAC, right? It, it's this non, this anti-corruption group. It's an NGO, but it is a joint project with the Joint Prosecutor's General Office, and it just so happens to be funded by George Soros dollars. Another quote from the letter, and I quote, we have accounted for every single foreign assistance dollar provided within the framework of this project, as is our practice for every project we support in Ukraine, end quote. And again, that money, it's gone. It's a whisper in the wind, a thief in the night, a ghost, poof, vanished. Glenn Beck and Blaze TV have the documentation to show the deposit, but there's no documentation to show where that money went. Back to Kolomoisky, as Kolomoisky also, coincidentally, I'm sure, happens to be the co-founder and owner of Pravat Bank. You don't say. Oh, I say. He happens to have the largest ownership stake in Pravat Bank, and he just so happened to be the governor of an area over there, Dnipropetrovsk. That's what I'm calling it, Dnipropetrovsk. That is how it looks to be spelled. A region that just so happens to be right on the front lines of the embattled regions under threat from attacks from Russia. That doesn't sound important yet, but don't worry, we're getting there. He, Kolomoisky, was privately financing militias to fight Russia. And Dnipro just so happens to be the city in this region that he's the governor of, and also happens to be where Pravat Bank's headquarters reside. And it also happens to be the name used for one of these private militia groups that he's hiring. They were called Dnipro 1. And the U.S. lifted this guy's travel ban again after he was beheading people with chainsaws. So he's the owner of Burisma. Hunter Biden joins the board. The, the travel ban gets lifted. He now has a visa to come to the U.S., which is the U.S. is legitimizing this guy by saying he's good to go. He was previously bad. We checked him out. Everything's good. We're giving him a visa. He is open for business now. And a reminder that the $1.8 billion that disappeared, disappeared in this guy's bank. All right. So we weren't bailing out their banks, it looks like. So what were we actually funding over there? Well, like I just told you, Kolomoisky is also financing private militias to fight the Russians on the Ukrainian-Russian border in the couple of regions in Donbass and also in Crimea, where the Russians have annexed Crimea and they're trying to take more land and the Ukrainians are trying their best to fight back, 
Barack Obama did never officially gave them any military aid. He was just sending them blankets. But was he sending them military aid secretly through this $1.8 billion, which just so happens to end up in the bank account of a guy who just so happens to be funding private militias right there on the border in the embattled regions? And then this is where it starts to get really weird. And I know that's hard to grasp being what I've just told you so far in this podcast, but Kolomoisky also just so happens to be the owner of the television network where a young comedian had a show where he played the president, and then he later went on to actually become the president of the country. And if you're wondering if I'm talking about Vladimir Zelensky, the gentleman who was on the phone call with Donald Trump, you bet your ass I am. Vladimir Zelensky was an actor, a comedian, who played the president on television, decided to run for president, and guess who his biggest backer was? Kolomoisky. Holy corruption, Batman. Now, Ukraine, like they, they may make the, the Clintons look like angels, honestly. This is just sort of crazy. We're going to circle back to the importance of the relationship between Kolomoisky and Zelensky in a minute. But there was another part of that phone call that was really important. And it was one of a few different things that Glenn Beck had raised questions about. There was four parts of the phone call that stuck out to him as odd. And here they are. Number one, the mention of CrowdStrike which is a tech firm that looked at the DNC servers and determined that the Russians had hacked it. Those servers were never handed over to the FBI. The founder of CrowdStrike is a gentleman by the name of Dmitry Alperovich, who just so happens to be associated with the Atlantic Council, who, as we'll find out in a second, is getting funding from not only Burisma, but is also working alongside the DNC to dig up dirt on Paul Manafort. That is the big conspiracy theory that Glenn Beck keeps referencing in his Ukraine final piece. There's not much of a conspiracy theory there. There's a lot of ties between CrowdStrike and operatives in the DNC. And if the DNC needed a narrative of the Russians hacked our servers, they could just as easily go to this CrowdStrike company, who I'm sure would be more than happy to toe the line for them. Neither here nor there. Glenn Beck doesn't believe any of that stuff. He wants to know why CrowdStrike was mentioned on the call. We're going to get to that. Number two. He says, Trump to Zelensky, I think you're surrounding yourself with some of the same people. Now, what is that referencing? Could he mean Kolomoisky, who was heavily involved under the Poroshenko regime and was just as involved, it appears, in some of the corruption that was, and a lot of the corruption that was going on in the Ukraine now under the Zelensky regime? He says, I think you're surrounding yourself with some of the same people. That's a concern of Trump's. Put a pin in that. Number three, he says, I heard you had a prosecutor who was very good and he was shut down. That's Shokin, unequivocally. That's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about Shokin there, and we all know that Biden had him fired because of number four, Biden's son. He specifically mentioned Biden's son on the phone call. So he mentions CrowdStrike, he mentions the prosecutor, he mentions Biden's son, and he mentions to Zelensky that I think you're surrounding yourself with a lot of the same people that were responsible for the corruption the first time around. So why CrowdStrike? Well, it just so happens that Burisma funds CrowdStrike and the Atlantic Council and the Five Eyes organization, which is an intelligence alliance between mostly English-speaking countries. So Burisma's funding CrowdStrike 
who we know had involvement in the 2016 election with the whole server nonsense, as I just mentioned. They fund CrowdStrike. They fund the Atlantic Council, which is where Alexandra Chalupa was working as she was trying to dig up dirt on Manafort during the election and going all across Ukraine to try to find dirt on Trump and Russia, otherwise known as colluding with foreigners to meddle in our election. Neither here nor there at the moment. Ms. Chalupa, you're safe for this podcast. This podcast. Why CrowdStrike? Well, this all kind of leads back to all of those things that I just said, right? Burisma funds CrowdStrike. So if Burisma, mind you, Hunter Biden was there. Hunter Biden was working in Burisma while they're funding CrowdStrike, while CrowdStrike's looking at the DNC servers and determining that the Russians hacked them, and no one else has ever seen those servers, so we just kind of have to take their word for it. Again, the Atlantic Council at Chalupa, who actually approached a Ukrainian prosecutor by the name of Litsenko. He was the Biden-approved prosecutor to get dirt on Trump regarding Russia. And then that same sort of information is what was ultimately also provided by Artem Sitnik of NABU, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, that's supposed to be overseeing the prosecutor general's office, but apparently their director was too busy trying to dig up dirt on Trump and Manafort to meddle in our 2016 election. And, of course, the material that they both presented is the Black Ledger, which led to a further look at Manafort, led to him resigning from the campaign, and ultimately to being charged with other crimes unrelated. By the way, that Black Ledger was told, you know, the, the Intelligence Bureau was told here by several different sources that there may very well be no legitimacy to that ledger, but they went ahead and continued to use it as if it was fact, just like they did with the Steele dossier. And then Beck drops the big bombshell. So this is going to tie it all together, right? He put together a timeline of the events related to this U.S. foreign aid that Trump supposedly refused to release on time, and even though he did release it 18 days before the deadline. But here is Beck's timeline. On September 2014, in September 2014, $1.8 billion is deposited into Pravat Bank from the U.S. for the purposes of ultimately, supposedly, helping to bail out their banking system. They choose to use the most corrupt bank of them all, founded by and run by Kolomoisky, to deposit that money. Flash forward to December 2016. Ukraine seizes Pravat Bank which has got about $7 billion in-house there, because Kolomoisky was enriching himself with incoming IMF loans. Keep that in mind. Now, why do they do this in December of 2016? It could be because the month prior, President Trump was elected, and they knew that the corrupt actors in Ukraine were no longer going to have Biden to provide cover for them. Also, the IMF reopens possibilities of more loans per the seizure of Pravat Bank, which they presumed would no longer be a problem. Flash forward to July 25th, 2019. Trump has his call with Zelensky, where he mentions CrowdStrike. He mentions you might be surrounding yourself with some of the same corrupt people that the previous administration was surrounding themselves with. He mentions the prosecutor who was looking into the money that had disappeared and into the company that Hunter Biden worked for. And then, of course, he mentions Hunter Biden. That same day, July 25th, 2019, earlier in the day, mind you, from the phone call with Trump, the IMF had a press conference 
where they mentioned that Ukraine would need to fulfill certain obligations in order to get future loans again, opening up the possibility of a $5 billion loan, a quid pro quo, if you will. Something for something. You want $5 billion in loans from the IMF? You have certain standards that you need to meet, and it, they hadn't met them yet. But the IMF announced that they would go to visit Ukraine to assess the situation on the ground. Now, when did they do that? September 10th, 2019. The IMF heads to Ukraine to assess the situation on the ground there and possibly clear Ukraine for loans again. Once more, that same day, September 10th, 2019, the Office of Management of Budget, the White House, sends an email to Ukraine saying that the U.S. aid will be released to them by the DOD, the Department of Defense, as soon as they fulfill their, quote, obligating event. Now, an obligating event is otherwise known as a condition or a requirement. In other words, this looks like it was a quid pro quo from not only the U.S., but also the IMF. So fair enough. Maybe there was a quid pro quo. There's still nothing inherently illegal about a quid pro quo, as was argued by the president's counsel during the impeachment trial. So, fair enough. New information is out. It looks like there may have been a quid pro quo, but there was also a quid pro quo going on between Ukraine and the IMF. Now, it stands to reason, being that we, I believe, were releasing the funds through the IMF for them to have this loan, that the quid pro quo would be similar conditions, right? And it most certainly wouldn't be in an announcement of an investigation on CNN. Why would the Office of Management and Budget, the Defense Department, and the IMF care about any of that? They wouldn't. But they were all rolling along with all this stuff. They needed Ukraine to fulfill an obligating event before the loan would be released. IMF also had things that they needed. They wouldn't care about the CNN interview with Zelensky saying that he's looking into Biden. It wouldn't make the damnedest bit of difference to them. What would? Well, the next day, September 11th, 2019, the IMF agrees to release the loan, and the U.S. physically releases the money. But didn't, wasn't there an obligating event that needed to be fulfilled? Oh, yeah. Well, and, and I'm sure this is just a coincidence, but on the morning of September 11th, 2019, Pravat Bank is raided by the Ukrainian government, which is made weirder when you consider the fact that Kolomoisky, the owner and founder of that bank, and the biggest backer of the president, sitting president during his pre presidential run, his presidential campaign, the two of them just so happened to have dinner on the night of September 10th, the night before Pravat Bank was about to be raided by Ukrainian government forces. I'm sure this whole we're going to raid your bank in the morning thing definitely didn't come up. I mean, it definitely didn't, right? This was, after all, the first time that these guys have met since the inauguration. There would have to be, oh, shit, this sound more and more like he probably did tell them that they're going to raid their bank in the morning. And I'm certain he did, as a matter of fact, because it just, you know, it turns out that everybody in Ukraine is corrupter than corrupt. And here we are with Zelensky, who was brought in as a reformer, as somebody who's going to turn it all around, Obviously ill-equipped, being that he was just a comedian and an actor before he ever actually entered politics, but he appears to be just as corrupt as his predecessors. I think Trump would say, I think you're surrounding yourself with some of the same people. Yeah, he's talking about Kolomoisky, guys. He's talking about Kolomoisky the whole way 
through. He's talking about Biden's son, who works for Kolomoisky, who happens to own a company named Burisma, which is not only where Biden's working, but is also funding CrowdStrike, who looks at the DNC servers during the election and says, oh, the Russians must have hacked this. Nothing else to see here. We're just going to bury these servers in the backyard now and tell the FBI our conclusions. He's also talking about the prosecutor that was looking into all of this. Those four points that Glenn Beck pointed out that seemed so completely baffling to him at the time, suddenly they all make sense. And it explains why Trump is asking about CrowdStrike. It explains why he's talking about the fired prosecutor. It explains why Trump is asking about Hunter Biden because without Biden's presence at Burisma and the whole cover of all of this being provided by his father, none of this is possible. None of this secret war where Kolomoisky is taking money that we deposited into his bank with the intention of bailing out the Ukrainian bank system, goes into his bank, poof, disappears like a fucking thief in the night, or he does with the money like a thief into the night. He takes that money, which is, by the way, fungible, even if he didn't take that money, the fact that we gave him $1.8 billion, and then he's taking money and spending it on private military to combat Russian forces on the border of Ukraine and Russia. I mean, it's just... It's too much, man. It's too much of a coincidence. Obama was fighting a secret war in Ukraine, in Russia, because he was too afraid to like let the world know that he was doing it because he was worried that he might piss off Putin. This is the same guy in 2012 told uh told Dmitry Medvedev, one of one of Putin's higher ups, that you know tell tell Vladimir I'll have some more flexibility after the election's over. Certainly wasn't talking about this. Was he playing both sides of the fence? If so, honestly, other than the fact that he was fighting a proxy war without the knowledge of Congress, I give him some credit for having some some diplomatic skills there, right? Like, he's still getting done what he needs to get done in Ukraine. And yeah, I'm actually giving Obama credit for something other than the fact, you know, he did all this illegally. But he was doing it, you know, kind of by cover of night, getting the objectives done on the ground in Ukraine that he wanted and still keeping the door open to continue, you know, at least a manageable relationship with Vladimir Putin in Russia. Now, this does, and, you know, intellectual consistency is something that we cherish here on The Right Opinion. If this is the case, and this is what Obama was doing, it completely blows a massive hole in the whole Obama was weak on Russia narrative. Now, he could have done this a better way. Like, he could have gone about this the right way and told Congress, yes, we are going to give the Ukrainians some weapons. Yes, we are going to combat Russia. Yes, this could lead to longer you know, bigger term problems for us dealing with Russia, but it's the right thing to do. The Ukrainians are suffering. They're in pain. They're dealing with all this aggression from Russia and all we're doing is sending them blankets. It's time to send them something with a little bit more firepower. He could have done all of that and none of this would have been a problem. He could have gotten approved through Congress just like Trump did. Trump actually got the military aid approved by Congress and it was sent They sent an entire missile system to them, and they were about to send another when Trump held up the aid because he thought that uh, Zelensky was surrounding himself with some of the same people and that he was curious about CrowdStrike and Hunter Biden and the prosecutor that was fired for looking into all of it. Now, Beck presumes at some point during his presentation, Glenn Beck, that is, that Putin must have put all this together. (laughs) Putin must have put Putin must have put all of this together and that that may very well have been his motivation for interfering in our election. Now, I think 
The Russians are always interfering in our election. They're just getting slightly better at it, even though they weren't really able to make any substantial changes to any votes or swing anybody with anything other than some Facebook ads. And frankly, those idiots were dumb enough to believe those things. Well, let's face it, they're dumb enough to believe anything, so it doesn't really matter what the source is. But this is all happening, right, where Obama doesn't want to piss off Putin. So instead of just telling, you know, instead of doing it the right way, which may have gotten on Putin's radar a little bit more loudly and, and you know, and obviously, he decides to enrich a multinational thug who chainsaws his rival's heads off and Hunter Biden and Hunter Biden's buddies in some massive money laundering scheme where the money that was supposed to go to bail out a banking system that, frankly, it's probably beyond repair at this point, and not to mention... I didn't like having to bail out our banking system. Really don't want to be bailing out other banking systems that are far more corrupt than ours. So even if his original reason was was legitimate, which it, it appears now it was not, because they're claiming that they know where this money is, even though that money is is unfindable. You can't even find the money anywhere, which means that it probably ended up exactly where it was intended, which is in the pocket of Kolomoisky, so that he can hire private militias to fight the proxy war on behalf of Obama. Ladies and gentlemen, Obama's secret war. And in case you needed further evidence that this was going all the way up to Barack Obama and not just some weird Joe Biden side project that, let's face it, he's mentally incapable of pulling off on his own anyway, let's go to former failed presidential candidate, former Secretary of State John Kerry, who just so happened to recently been out stumping for Joe Biden, and he was asked about the firing of Shokin, the prosecutor Biden went over there and said, you got to fire this guy or I'm not giving you the billion dollars. Here's what John Kerry had to say. I will tell you, because as Secretary of State, I was deeply involved in this. All of us in the administration were trying to get rid of that prosecutor. From Obama to the Secretary of State to the Vice President, all of us were working on that. The ambassador and and we knew if Ukraine was going to survive and win the revolution in the end, the Maidan. They had to get rid of that prosecutor, and they did. Now, did you catch that part at the end there? The whole win the revolution thing, the Maidan, which is the name of the revolution, the battle that's going on there at the border with Russia and Ukraine. Win the revolution? But I thought this was about ousting a corrupt prosecutor. How would that help them win the revolution? Now, a revolution, I mean, that sounds more like a war than a metaphorical fight against corruption, right? And I'm sorry, John, but the fact that your beloved Barack Obama was involved in this isn't the least bit reassuring, okay, horseface? But maybe the prosecutor was the one who was standing in the way of them fighting their proxy war, of the secret war that Obama was fighting against the Russians. Maybe that prosecutor, in looking in to Kolomoisky and the money that disappeared and wondering what's going on here, he gets a letter from George Kent saying like, hey, we're good. We know exactly where that money went. We're fine with it. You can just, you know, move on with your day. That wasn't enough. Biden shows up in December of 2015 in Ukraine and says, I want this guy fired. They don't do it. He comes back three months later with a billion dollar loan to hang over their head. He says, I really, really want you to fire this guy now because apparently he's about to interview my son the next day to ask about all this sort of stuff. That money 
the $1.8 billion, the original $1.8 billion, gets funneled into the bank that's run by the same guy who owns Burisma, who's chainsawing people's heads off because he's just a swell dude. That money gets dropped into there, funneled through a bunch of shell companies, laundered to high hell, and ends up in the pockets of, of Kolomoisky and of arms dealers and of militia people who are there to fight the proxy war with the Russians. I mean, maybe. Probably. It's certainly more plausible than any of the tales that CNN's been telling you about, any of the, the, the CNN interviews or White House meetings or, or blackmail and extortion and bribery and all that sort of stuff that simply never happened. All you have to do is ask the Ukrainians. And it's not just Zelensky, who I've proven to this point is probably just as corrupt as the rest of them, but all of the other officials there. Now, we don't, I mean, honestly, I don't believe a word anyone says in the Ukraine anymore. Also, worth note is that John Kerry mentioned the ambassador in there. That's Marie Yovanovitch. So Biden, Hunter, uh, Biden, Obama, Kerry, and Yovanovitch are all working together to try to get this guy fired. None of these people are clean in all this. None of these people are trustworthy. So the fact that he would throw all these people's names in there, frankly, I think this was a slip of the tongue by John Kerry here. I think he gave away the game by talking about winning the revolution in regards to getting rid of a prosecutor. That's not you don't stop the Russians by getting rid of a corrupt prosecutor. Even if you think that corrupt prosecutor is helping the Russians in some way, he's certainly not helping them on the front lines of the war that you're fighting on the border there. So, that's pretty much it, man. That's all I got. You got the Biden crime family, you got Joe Biden's a plagiarist, James Biden, Frank Biden, Hunter Biden, Ashley Biden, and Valerie Biden Owens all making a bunch of money. That doesn't even mention Hunter Biden, who is probably the only reason. His existence, his very existence on the board of Burisma allows for all of the Obama secret war stuff that I laid out there, allows for Kolomoisky to get put back on a travel list, get a U.S. visa, get $1.8 billion donate, uh, d donated, dropped into his bank, essentially donated, and he's out there fighting a war, basically, through his own private money, which may very well be our private money at this point. And what a shame it would be if they were doing this. Now, look, I, I, I think it's fairly obvious I was not a huge fan of Barack Obama. That said, I kind of hope this isn't true. Uh, not because it blows a hole in the Trump was, uh, uh, the Obama was, you know, wasn't hard on Russia narrative. Just because this is bad stuff, man. Like, this is really bad. Fighting a secret proxy war without the knowledge of, of Congress at the cost of the American taxpayers, emboldening multinational money laundering thugs with chainsaws trying to decapitate their rivals. None of this is good. Not, and the least nefarious thing here is the fact that Hunter Biden enriched himself um, along all this. I mean, I think the stuff in, in China, frankly, is way worse than what he was doing in Ukraine. But if his presence there was allowing all of this to go on, and also, not, not, let's not forget what was going on in China. His presence there allowed them to steal our military and nuclear technology, too. This kid just stayed here in the States and didn't get any of these jobs he wasn't qualified for and was getting an exorbitant amount of money to do. None of this would have happened. And that's why we need to investigate this. And it is now, as Glenn Beck has been saying now, I've been listening to his show a lot, which is how I stumbled across the whole Ukraine final peace thing. And I'll definitely have a link to that in the show notes. It's a good watch. It's like an hour, 20 minutes, I want to say. And you could probably fast forward through the first 10 minutes or so because it's Beck bloviating about how wonderful he and, and Blaze TV are. And they are. Let's not, let's not poo-poo it. They did some great work here. But it is now time for us to go on the offensive. Since Trump took office, Trump... His allies, the Republicans, his supporters, really just regular decent Americans. We've all been on 
the defense. Russia Gate and Ukraine Gate and Emoluments Clause and 25th Amendments and this and that and whatever. They've 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 thrown far too many stones at the king and missed far too many times. It's time for it to come back around. And I'm being metaphorical with the king thing there. Keep your shit together, please. But it's time to go on the offensive. We know that the Obama administration was riddled with corruption. There was so much stuff going on there, the least of which was Hillary's emails and all this sort of stuff, not to mention Project Cassandra where they have Hezbollah selling drugs in the U.S. so that he could get his fucking Iran deal through or giving guns to Mexican cartels. There was a lot of shady shit that went on during the Obama administration, and the media just goes, well, well, scandal-free. Yeah, it's scandal-free because you guys are terrible at your jobs, and you didn't Either you didn't report it because he was your golden calf, or you weren't even interested in looking into it because he was your golden calf. Regardless, the Obama administration was far from scandal-free. As we've seen in the last few years, just the, the malfeasance in the FBI under Obama alone is a big enough scandal to blow up most presidencies, but alas, they all still sit there and worship at the altar of Barack Obama. I don't even know why at this point. He could have saved our boy, you know, his boy Joe here at any point during this campaign. Could have stepped in when Kamala called him a racist. Could have stepped in when people were questioning his his, his mental uh, state. Could, people could have stepped in when the Hunter Biden thing came about. He could have saved Biden any time he wanted to, and he didn't because he's a terrible person who has absolutely no sense of loyalty or respect for the people around him. It's him and Michelle versus the world everyone else be damned and here he is we're gonna see him because he's gonna come out eventually as soon as the democrats finally pick a nominee he will come out and back them and it's it's important for us to have all of the information that we could possibly muster about just how corrupt that administration was so that when he comes out and says vote for bernie or vote for joe or vote for elizabeth we can all say no one gives a fuck barry you were the worst president ever and it's a miracle that you're not in jail right now. That's what I'd like to be able to say. I think that Glenn Beck is on his way to getting there, but alas, I'm out of gas for the week. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This is one of those episodes, I I feel like they're all important because I wouldn't be sitting here wasting my time doing it if I didn't, but this episode and the episode before this is like the all-encompassing anthology of what you need to know about what went on in Ukraine. Some of what I said here debunked a little bit of what, what, what was said there. Some of what I said here cemented into fact some of the things that I said there. But it, it's a journey, man. And unless you want to go do what I did and spend like a weekend sitting around reading Ukraine newspaper articles, which I did, um, you know, this is this is the best way to get all the information because I cite it. I provide the links for you right there in the show notes. So if you go, huh, is that for real? Let me check the show notes. Click. Oh, yeah. Kiev Post. Pravat Bank was raided on September 11th, 2019. That's crazy. I don't actually have that link in there for you, but that rest assured, there is an article, Kiev Post, Pravat Bank raided, and that was on September 11th, 2019. It happens. It, it And it happened, rather. Glenn Beck showed that actual article on his special. So let me get the link for that in the show notes for you. All of the other articles will be linked in the show notes to you for you as well. A big hat tip to Peter Schweitzer. Go find his book, Secret Empires, Clinton Cash, or Profiles in Corruption. All of those three, any of them are great. There's also a free version of his documentary out there, Clinton Cash. Totally worth looking into. It's about an hour long and fully exposes all of the corruption going on around the Clinton Global Initiative and the Clinton Foundation. And also, 
I'd be remiss if I didn't thank once again Mr. Beck, Glenn Beck, that is, for all of the fine research he and the folks at Blaze TV did on this Ukraine thing. He has another show coming out, I believe, this week, Wednesday night, 9 o'clock, Blaze TV. I think it's free. I don't think it's part of the subscription. Uh, and it will be all about Hunter Biden and his dealings in China. So hopefully he has more information to provide than I provided here. I'll be watching with bated breath and open ears and an open mind. And I hope that's how you guys are listening to this show as well. So that's about it. Let me hit you with some plugs on the way out the door. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at RightOpinionPod. You can email the show, TheRightOpinionPod at gmail.com. That's TheRightOpinionPod at gmail.com. Also, you can uh, check out the Teespring shirt, uh, the Tee Public. I don't even know. I have a t-shirt store in the show notes. Check that out as well. I forget it because it's a long, convoluted URL, but it is always there in the show notes for you to click on if you want a Right Opinion logo t-shirt. I also have a t-shirt that is basically a copy of Trump's I want nothing, I want nothing, I want no quid pro quo, that whole thing that he wrote out on the card. I made like a copy of it and put it on a t-shirt, so that's there as well. There'll be other versions of t-shirts coming out at some point in the foreseeable future. If you order anything and uh, and the website screws it up, let me know, um, and I'll do my best to rectify that for you. Otherwise, um, other plugs include go to hackerhameen.podbean.com for all the best in professional wrestling, conspiracy theory, free thought, news, politics, sports now. There's like a million sports shows going on over there. There's a South Park show. There's a Star Wars show. There's a oh, just so much stuff. Check all that out over at hackerhameen.podbean.com or just search hackerhameen in your podcatcher of choice. Also, Rat Salad Review, our boys over there. Shoutouts to Uncle Saxton. Shoutouts to Wayne Noon. Shoutouts to Greg Noggle. All the guys of the actual Rat Salad Review. There are other shows on that platform. Check them out. They're on YouTube, BitChute, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, like anywhere music and video can be found or podcast and video can be found. They are there. That's ratsaladreview.com, hackerhameen.podbean.com. And of course, if you're not already subscribed, check out the right opinion dot podbean.com and the twitter follow is huge at right opinion pod because you're getting me most days i'm like locked on on twitter to the point to where my girlfriend gets mad at me and i don't blame her but it's hard to not be like that when a i'm trying to build a brand and b there's just so much nonsense that's coming out that i can't shoehorn into shows all the time and i'd like to get some thoughts out on it let's get some retweets going let's get some likes going let's get some threads going i like to piece together a lot of stuff and try to give you the news in real time as best i possibly can with some charming hilarious and intelligent opinions to go along with it and i hope that's what i'm providing that's the idea anyway right here on the right opinion podcast anyway I'm going to send you home, but of course, i got to remind you guys that opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one, but this asshole has the right opinion, and you can find it right here on therightopinion.podbean.com. I'll talk to you guys next time. Peace! <laughs>